morning, everyone. We're resuming the inquirer's class this morning with a brief look at the vows that accompany membership in the church. We'll talk about those in just a minute, but let's first talk generally about the idea of making vows and then the commitment to the Lord that we make when we make those vows. But before we do that, let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your love and mercy. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning, that your faithfulness is great. We're believers. We trust you. We thank you for your love and mercy, goodness and kindness. Thank you for calling us and making us your own, forgiving our sins, leading us in righteousness. There are occasions, Lord, when we claim to be believers, but from time to time we act like doubters. Forgive us for that. Help us to walk consistently day in and day out for your glory and for the sake of the kingdom, we pray. Amen. All right, as we begin, let's remember that when Jesus first began his ministry, he took on the title that was given to one who is a teacher of the law. That is, he became a rabbi. Interestingly, in that culture, the followers of a rabbi, sometimes called disciples, they would follow a particular teacher because they favored his interpretation of the Torah. We're talking about first century Palestine. It was said that when you followed a particular rabbi, you took up the yoke of that rabbi. Remember what Jesus said? This is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, but it gives particular significance to that whole passage. Jesus said this, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Familiar passage. And then he said this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for yourselves. For, Jesus said, as a rabbi, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now that's a tremendous statement to recognize the way they saw his interpretation of the Torah. Rather than being a weight they could not carry in that culture, but he said, it's easy and light because he was projecting forward salvation by grace through faith alone and not by works. So as a rabbi, but as the Messiah, Jesus was calling for everybody, us included, to join him in the work of the kingdom. And lots of people lined up to do that, especially in the early part of his ministry. We see it in many places in the gospel. For example, Matthew 10 you see there that crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. But listen to this within the same framework, but from Luke chapter 9. This concerns the resolve of many to follow the Lord. This is Luke 9, starting at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, Master, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Y'all remember that? To another person, he said, follow me. But that person said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That seems a little harsh. There's a longer explanation for that for another day. And then finally, a third person said these words to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first go say farewell to those at my home. 
Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Now we're talking about vows generally, and we're doing that in the context that we see in the Old Testament where some people were committing to him. So what we can understand is some make a commitment, but sometimes, lots of times, people who make vows have strings attached. That is, they're sort of reserving the right to pull back a little bit. Interestingly, we see that very clearly in John 6 where Jesus, after the feeding of the 5,000, he spoke about true believers, get this, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. You all remember that? Although Jesus made clear it's the spirit who gives life. He was speaking about the spirit realm when he made those statements about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. What he said essentially is the flesh is no help at all and that the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. He was clarifying what he said about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The Roman Catholics, as you know, see that very different in their Eucharist service where they believe that they really are eating his flesh and drinking his blood. When those people in that day in John chapter 6 heard those words, what's real clear, as John makes absolutely direct and clear, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In other words, they made a commitment but then had strings attached. They didn't fully understand or they, didn't, they did not recognize clearly what was required of them. It happened with Paul, as we know, when some who had walked with him turned away. And we see that happen from time to time with churches over the years. Y'all ever been in a church where sometimes people come in with a flash of glory and then not too long after that, what happens? We've all seen it. In fact, sadly, we've seen it here when certain people's original commitment wanes and then at some point they're just not here anymore. If those persons here had become members, they would have made vows, the ones that you see before you there. And what it means is they've abandoned that commitment to this particular church. They may have gone elsewhere. And when somebody comes here and leaves, we do our level dead level best as elders to find out what's the nature of their departure and then try to ensure that their spiritual commitment is going to be followed. may not be here. That's okay as long as they remain fully committed to the work of the kingdom. Now, we know all of that about vows because of what the Bible says about this issue of making vows. In fact, it's all over the Old Testament, especially in the first five books, the Torah, where the Lord, through Moses, was giving specific moral, sacred instruction to the children of Israel as they were getting ready to enter the Promised Land. We might say that the Lord was having each one of them sort of dial in the right launch code of their commitment. When you follow me, this is what it looks like. Listen to what Moses said about the people of Israel as they were preparing to cross the promised land, cross into the promised land as they went through the Jordan. This is Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. 
If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So the instruction from Moses to the roughly two million people that were about to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land is this. If you make a commitment, if you make a vow, be sure to keep it. He said it again later in Deuteronomy chapter 23, starting at verse 21. Deuteronomy means, by the way, second giving of the law. So they are poised east of the Jordan, just above the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, and they are preparing to cross into and go into Jericho. They're all assembled, the whole crowd of them. It's like, Larry and I would say it's like Woodstock, right? <laughs> Two plus million people. And then, is that back when you had either hair or long hair? Deuteronomy 23, second giving of the law, just as they were going to cross the Jordan. Here's what the Lord said through Moses. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you'll not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed from your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So when a person like yourselves, like those of us who joined the church, you'll make the membership vows that are set out in the book of church order, which is what you have before you there. It's kind of like the book of church order is in some respects a portion of our church's constitution. The Bible first, the larger and shorter catechisms, and the confession of faith. So making and then breaking vows, pretty serious business. Here's what Solomon said about this whole issue. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He says these words, beginning at verse 1, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know what they're doing. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, don't delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and don't say before the message that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase, words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So the point of all of this is Vows made without thinking could be dreadful. Remember what happened with Jephthah in the Old Testament. He's one of the heroes of sorts in Judges. This is what happened in chapter 11. They were going up against the Ammonites at that point. This is starting in verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will just give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, that will be the Lord's, and I will offer it up to the Lord. Remember whom he saw? His daughter. And he 
Scripture is unclear exactly about what happened to the daughter. Some say she went off and stayed away forever. Others say that she was sacrificed. Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. It's the tragedy of a vow made improperly. That may have been the most ill-advised vow in the history of the Bible. So look at the vows before you. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure without hope, except in his sovereign mercy? Number two, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners? Do you receive and rest on him alone for salvation as he had offered in the gospel? Three, do you resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you'll endeavor to live as becomes followers of Christ? Number four, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And then five, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church? Do you promise to study its purity and peace? The goal of the inquirer's classes is to simply acquaint you with the church and then set before you the vows that you'll be asked to make when you join the church. So let's talk briefly about vow number one this morning, and then the others will come in the next two or three Sundays. The first one again, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, save for his sovereign mercy? Let me do it in the context of my personal testimony. It's really boring and bland, but here it is. I grew up in Douglasville. At age six, I was, by the way, one of four boys. I was elbowed down the aisle at First Baptist Church, the old structure downtown near the courthouse. So when I got elbowed down the aisle, I got saved. I made a decision for Christ because my dad told me it was time for me to become a Christian. And by the way, I also got offering envelopes in the process. <laughs> I was six years old. <laughs> and all the way through high school, I grew up learning lots and lots of Bible stories. Just a young man, boy in the South, growing up, going to church like a lot of people down here in the Bible Belt. What we learned in our home was lots and lots of Bible stories. And when we sat around the table mom and dad and the four of us, we always said the blessing, but here's what never happened. We never had any discussions about the principles that underlie the Bible. Mostly what we knew about was what we just heard from Sunday school lessons that were all about stories. In my life, it was check the box Christianity. Anybody ever been there? That, that was it early on. In law school, however, I was born in 1951. In law school, 1973, a lawyer named, get this, Pat Swindle. <laughs> he later ran for Congress under the slogan, you can trust Pat Swindle. <laughs> and he was in Congress for four years as a Republican. This lawyer named Pat Swindle invited me to a small group Bible study. And it was like five or six of us meeting in somebody's living room. And it was, it was just as routine as going to visit somebody. But what we did was we opened and read the Bible. 
Never done it in my entire life. Had this really leather bound with my name engraved on it. The words of Jesus were in red. But I never read it for content. Never read it for principles. Um, Carol and I married in 1976. I, I filled out the application. She accepted my request to be married. <laughs> we moved to Augusta, Georgia. And we went to several churches. And they were just sort of fluffy. I mean, there were wonderful fellowship, had great choirs, a lot of energy, but there was no biblical instruction. So a friend who happened to be a lawyer in Augusta invited us to attend First Presbyterian Church. We were there 20 months, and during that time, we were in Romans 3 through Romans 5. 20 months, three chapters. And for the first time, we learned about, not I, Carol was already there, but I'm sorry, it was not Carol, it was I. For the first time, learning about the weightier things of the word, like, for example, Romans 3.23. Remember, we're talking about vow number one. Vow number one deals with the concept of our being persons who are alienated from the Lord. Do we acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God justly deserving his displeasure? Romans 3.23, we're hearing it, and really thinking about it, and he said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Free gift of God is eternal life. And then Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love toward us in that, you know the verse, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Vow 1 stands for this concept, we were without hope, and without interest in the deep things of the Lord because we had, for lack of a better way of saying it, we had broken operating systems. The principles of the five points of Calvinism, you know, at T-U-L-I-T, it begins with the T, which means total depravity. Now get this. When Presbyterians and Calvinists talk about five points of Calvinism, and they talk about total depravity, it does not mean believers don't have good morals. It doesn't mean they don't love people and serve others. It just means that that concept means we are alienated from the Lord. And if a person dies not having come to know Christ to have his blood cover our sin, when we die, we're separated from him forever. So get this, the Magna Carta for all of us as Christians could probably be expressed as Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is like the solid rock foundation. Listen to this. Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It doesn't mean that people who don't know Christ don't start Nonprofit organizations and help charitably people for the rest of decades. But what it does mean 
is that that is the natural born condition of humans apart from Christ, sinners in the sight of God. And that's the innate condition of persons who don't know Christ. Everybody in this room is likely already a Christian, but before you came to faith in Christ, that was it. And if you have not yet accepted Christ as your Savior, that's where all those people find themselves. Now, I will say this. Over the years as a lawyer, I've met lots of wretched and terrible people who were in jail and should be because of terrible conduct. But there are plenty of people who could be characterized as fitting in vow number one who are helping with the PTA, attending, turn, attending church somewhere, possibly doing, as I said earlier, charity work, not cheating on their taxes. But what's their baseline condition? That's the question that every person will have to answer. I mentioned there are four in our family. I am the second of all that group. The third brother in, my, in our family is a brother named Ray. We all grew up the same. He was elbowed at age six down the aisle just like the other three of us. He happens to be two and a half years younger and was recently diagnosed with renal cell carcinoma that has metastasized to his lungs and liver and now into his ribs and sternum. He is a distinguished emergency room doctor in Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas, and he is alienated from the Lord because those things that he heard went in one ear and out the other, and he does not know Christ. And he's one of the greatest emergency room doctors in America. And unless the Lord deals with him and opens his mind and heart to see the truth, separated from God and dead in trespasses and sins. The Spirit has to wake us up so that we'll know that. And our prayer and our family has been that that would happen for my brother Ray. The way that occurs, the way that transaction goes about is, listen to this, it's from Ephesians 2. It continues in Ephesians. This is the rest of the foundation, the rest of the Magna Carta. starts in verse 4. Listen carefully. We had just concluded with our discussion about people alienated him, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, by nature children of wrath. But then verse 4, the very next phrase, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, because by grace we have been saved. And he raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has ordained in advance that we would walk in them. You get the formula? Dead in trespasses and sins, but God by his mercy redeemed us. Bottom line is this. We were Lazarus, dead for four days in a tomb, and what happened? Jesus called us. 
Move on those erectors. We were Zacchaeus, peering out of a tree at the passing rabbi. Zacchaeus, um, Zacchaeus by the way, was even shorter than I. <laughs> he was rescued from a corrupt life of exhortation and greed when Jesus said, I'm going to your house for lunch. Hope you have Chick-fil-A. We were Paul watching an angry mob as they did what to Stephen? Stoned him. We were the woman caught in adultery being dragged before Jesus. I remember this story. Dragged before Jesus. And the Pharisees and others who may have been among that crowd were trying to get Jesus to do something other than show mercy. So in the ingenuity of our Redeemer, you've got all those men, and they were prepared and ready to do what to her? Stone her for the violation of being caught in that act. And Jesus knelt down, and what did he do? Do you recall? scribbled in the sand something. Now, this woman had been caught in an adulterous relationship. Someone wrote about that, but he was probably writing out the names of some of the men in the crowd who had been with her earlier. Who knows for sure? But one by one, those guys let the stones drop from their hands, and they walked away. Now, the law of Moses required what for her to be condemned? Two witnesses. So Jesus said to her, where are your accusers? Where are the witnesses? They were not there. And he said to her, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. To her and to us, he says these words, you are mine. Follow me. Pay your vows. I love you. Now, all vow-making, all vow-keeping is based on people like us living in grateful appreciation for what he has done to redeem us. They sometimes say about us as Presbyterians that we have no hearts and we're all academic and we don't don't understand anything about the wonder and grace. One of the ones who says that is my Pentecostal brother, When he goes to church, it's like a yoga convention. (laughs) But he's a wonderful, godly man. But what should fuel our devotion to serve him unconditionally and forever is the fact that vow number one talks about something that is absolutely true, and that is we were sinners, and he snatched us out of the fire. I was talking to Bill Freeman. Y'all don't know Bill. He's the fellow in our church that's in his last days with prostate cancer. So he and I were talking Friday. Known him for over 40 years. He was a pallbearer in our daughter's funeral all those 41 years ago. And he's talking about the fact that underlies what we've been talking about today. And then this thought occurred to me. I was reading in Job recently, chapter 26. And what has happened to that point in the book of Job is that he, being 
most righteous person in the world. That's what the father said to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? And following that, Satan tempts Job initially with the loss of all of his children, the loss of his possessions, the loss of his wealth, and he despaired. He understood the Hebrew concept at that point was that if you suffer, it's because you've engaged in some sin. And that's what his three friends had to say. Job, you must have done something. And he quarrels with them. But by the time you get to chapter 26, Job, who himself has been struggling with having that same mindset, trying to square up his otherwise obedient lifestyle with those things that have happened to him, he's starting to get a glimmer of the fact that God in his providence had worked in his life in an unusual way. And so when you get to chapter 26, he begins to reflect on what we see later in the last four chapters of the book where God confronts Job with his absolute power over all things. His absolute power. So listen to this, and then I'll tie it back to vow number one, and we'll wrap up. First he says to in this particular case, it was Bildad of the three. And he said, how have you helped him who has no power? Meaning, how you, Bildad, have you helped me when I have no power? How have you saved the arm, my arm, that has no strength? How have you counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge? With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come upon you? And then he says this, the dead tremble. It's almost like you can envision him saying those things to his accuser and then starting just to reflect. The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. He's talking about everybody on earth. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. He, meaning God, stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He, God, covers the face of the full moon and spreads, up, spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble like thunder and they are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea, by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his wind the heavens were made fair, his hand pursed or pierced the fleeing serpent. And then verse 14, if you ever memorize any Bible verse, remember this one. But these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him. Another translation says, these are but the very fringes of his ways. So my point in all of that is this. We have not for one moment begun to understand the enormity and power and greatness of he who redeemed us from our sin condition. Now that will make vow keepers out of every one of us. Amen. Okay, thoughts or questions, anybody? Professor? Well, in a sense, yes. I was uh, 
Yeah, that's right. John is talking about essentially the concept of sanctification, where there was an occasion when we may have read something in the Word, but then when we come back to it later, we get a different sense, impression, a different revelation of sorts about what that means to us. And that's the uniqueness of the Scripture, where the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit provides illumination to all of us. Okay, well, thank you all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for the word and for the dynamic way in which it provides for us an understanding of our condition apart from you. Those who formulated the vows when this denomination was started in 1973 recognized a true principle, a biblical principle, and that is Apart from you, we are those who have no hope. We are sinners in the sight of God, deserving his displeasure, without hope, save in his sovereign Lord, and his, in the sovereign Lord and in his sovereign mercy. But what we'll see next week in vow number two is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Savior of sinners, and that when he moves on our hearts, we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation so that, vow three, we can resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that, as John just said, provides ongoing revelation to us of the meaning of the word that we'll endeavor to live as it becomes the followers of Christ from this point forward. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.